0: All right. Let's go to the Lord in Prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful season, where you do remind us so much of new life—the new life that we can have in you if we have asked you to be our personal Lord and Savior. That we too have victory over the grave, as you did, and and you have taken the sting from death. And we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and. Um, We thank you for this privilege that we have to assemble in this beautiful facility for the sole purpose of of getting to know him better. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be the teacher this morning, that he would teach us those things that we need to learn so that we might conform ourselves more into your son's image. And, Father, I pray now that you would help us to focus on what your Spirit has to say through your word, that our minds would would be stayed on your word, that we would not think of all the things that we have to do this week and this day, and um, that we would just hear what your Spirit has to tell to each of us. And, Lord, I just pray that um, your Son would be lifted up, that you would hide your servant behind the words and the works of Jesus Christ, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen. Our lesson number 82 in your books is called Preserving Family Unity. Now you know for two lessons we have been looking at the Lord's seventh recorded sermon in our Life of Christ study, a sermon which contains one of his most comprehensive comprehensive discourses on the subject of how Christians are to get along with one another. And function as a unified body we have called this sermon the sermon on being children of God that which would that which was to be the greatest in the kingdom of God we learned was to be the one who was the most humble remember what precipitated this particular sermon it was the disciples dispute among one another as to who was to be the greatest and The Lord, using a small child as his living illustration, began to teach his men about true greatness, not from man's perspective, but from God's perspective. He said that it all begins with what? Humility, exactly. It all begins with childlike humility. In fact, he said in verse 3 of uh, chapter 18 that there is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven without it. He said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, it's topsy-turvy from the world, isn't it? The the last shall be first. The least is viewed as the, the greatest. The most humble is the most exalted. God holds the one who willingly fills the lowly office of a servant to his brothers in the highest esteem, which is exactly the opposite from what the world does. Because of their new position in the Lord Jesus and their identity with both him, with Christ, and with his Father, all believers, we learned this last week, all believers, or the Lord's little ones, he called them, should be received with the same humble kindness with which Christ himself would be received. And he said this in verse 5. He said, And whoso shall receive one such little one in my name receiveth me. Now, the disciples had neglected to do this when they had encountered a man who was casting out demons in Christ's name. Instead of encouraging that man for for his labor in, in Christ's name, Instead of giving him, so to speak, a cup of water to drink or even maybe taking him to the Lord Jesus and introducing him to him, what had they done? They had, yeah, they, they had rebuked him. They, they forbade him, how dare you, you know, be working against the forces of Satan in Christ's name. They had forbade him to, to continue to, to do his exorcisms because of the fact that he had not been part of their little group. And that was called the sin of sectarianism. Because of their sectarianism, because of their pride, and because of their jealousies with even one another, the Lord Jesus had to strongly reprimand them. So he told them how serious it is for anyone, especially Christians, to cause one of his little ones to stumble. And remember, we talked about the fact that the little ones not only refers to little Children, literal little children, but also to anyone who believes on him, as it tells us up in verse 6. So he was dealing with the proud, superior attitude the disciples had displayed, not only against one another when they had argued among themselves, but also against a fellow believer. Now, so far in our study of this sermon, we have seen that believers should see themselves as humble-minded servants, of one another, not as individual, greatness-seeking, honor-deserving celebrities. That was the first part of our outline for this sermon, that we should be servants, not celebrities. Furthermore, we must go out of our way, giving up, if necessary, giving up even our own rights and our own liberties in order to be stepping stones to greater spiritual maturity for others and not what? Stumbling blocks. We all want to be stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. Now in today's lesson, preserving family unity, we're going to look at an important principle taught in Matthew 18 verses 10 to 20, although it'll be a two-part study, which is that children of God also need to be toward one another sympathetics and not scorners in regard to our treatment of one another. And in this, uh, looking at this Part C of our outline, we're going to be talking about despising not the family. That's what we'll talk about today, verses 10 to 14. And then, Lord willing, when we come back after our resurrection break, we will be looking at discipline within the family, which will take us from verses 15 to 20. So let's read the passage right now. I guess I'll just read the verses we're going to cover this morning. So let's look at Matthew 18, starting at verse 10, reading through verse 14. There are not any parallel passages over in Mark or Luke, so we're just going to be comfortably sitting in Matthew 18 today. All right, says, the Lord says, "...take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones." And the definition of little ones, as I said, is up in verse 6, where he said, "...but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me." So you and I are all his little ones. Believers are his little ones. He says, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All right, as I mentioned, the the, uh, reference to one of these little ones has a double meaning. So when you hear him talk about little ones, don't only think of physical little children, but also think of God's, more importantly, think of God's spiritual children. Once again, Jesus gave a serious warning to those who mistreat the ones who belong to him. However, this time he added an even deeper dimension of abuse. You remember he'd already talked about actions and behavior that may cause a child of God to be offended or to stumble, to be scandalized. The, you know, the Greek word scandalizo means to be scandalized. We can cause somebody else, a fellow Christian, to stumble spiritually by what we do, our actions, our behavior, our outward things. And we can even do this to ourselves. Remember, we talked about that. We can offend ourselves. We can cause ourselves to stumble into sin. And that's why it would be better to, you know, remove a hand or a foot or an eye uh, so that we won't sin. But now in these next verses, that I, the ones I just read, he discusses even the inner feelings, not just the outward actions, but the inner feelings that one might hold toward a fellow believer. He said, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. And the Greek word for despise literally means to think down on someone. So he's saying we are not even to look down on another Christian as as being someone inferior or someone unworthy of our consideration. Think about that in your life. Is, is there a fellow Christian you even think down on a little bit? That's what the word despise. It doesn't mean hate. Of course, we're not to hate. We're even to love our enemies, but we're not not to even look down on a fellow Christian. In the context of verse 10, The Lord was rebuking, always take things in their context. Remember, he's rebuking his men about their argument that they had had among themselves regarding greatness. When they disputed for self-prominence, they were actually pushing the others down. This is what I call teeter-totter Christianity. And, And we Christians are pretty good at that. You know, if you push somebody else down enough, what happens to you in your mind? You're elevated. You know, push them down and, well, you know, I'm not as bad as that person. So you're kind of pushing yourself up. And that's what they were doing. They were trying to make them... They wanted to each be the greatest. So to be the greatest, the others have to be less, right? So they were engaged in teeter-totter Christianity. And this was a form of despising one another. In other words, of looking down on one another. And this is likewise what they had done with the man they encountered who had been casting out demons in jesus name they had rebuked him why really if you think about it, why had they rebuked him because they looked down on him he was not part of their elite apostolic group he did not follow the lord with them so that was a form of despising the man now while it's natural for the world out there to despise christians we expect that don't we We expect them to despise us, to look down on us as inferiors. The world will look at Christians and say, well, we're just people who need a crutch of some kind. They look down on us because they hate the light that should be emanating from us, that's shining on their darkness and exposing their evil. They hate us or despise us because of the intolerance of our narrow-minded gospel message, which is, I have to admit, it is narrow-minded. There is only one way to heaven. And that one way is through Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's acceptable. you I mean, it's not acceptable, but we, we ex- expect the world to despise us. But it is not acceptable for Christians to look down on one another. And once again, we find that this was not only, therefore, a lesson that the Lord's men needed to hear and to heed. But is it one that the church today needs to heed and hear I should say hear and heed. There are a number of ways that a child or a child of God is despised by his fellow believers. Or in the case of a child, by believers. A child, and most of the time I say child, let's focus on Christians, all right? A child can be considered unimportant, uh, perhaps because of his age you know have you ever heard of people despising a pastor or looking down on a pastor because of his age you know he's too old or he's too young and it wasn't it timothy that paul said you know let them not despise you because of your youth or something like that so a person can be looked down on because of his age or because of his lack of competence maybe he Like, I have trouble sometimes spitting out my words. Maybe, you know, he just can't speak flowingly enough or doesn't have a big enough vocabulary, and so you kind of look down on him for that. Or maybe, um, and not just pastors, but we can do this for anybody, any fellow believer. Look down on a person because of their, maybe their lack of education, or maybe we look down on them because they've got too much education. Uh, We might despise somebody or look down on them because of who their family is, you know. Oh, they come from the wrong side of the tracks all of which comes down to one Christian being a respecter of persons of another Christian. And you know what I, when I say a respecter of persons, it's, I guess it's King James, it doesn't mean we respect the person, it means having any kind of prejudice or bigotry toward another person based on anything, nationality, social status, uh, what sex they are, what um, race they are, anything at all their background their education if we are a respecter of persons at all the book of James tells us that we commit sin that's in James 2 9 we are not to be respecters of persons if we are we are committing sin and we need to to uh, adjust properly and get rid of get rid of that in our lives also we can despise other believers by flaunting our Christian liberties in their faces, you know, by flaunting. And I hope you read your notes because I didn't spend a lot of time last week talking about the liberties, but I think in in the notes I did more. But we can flaunt our liberties before others, not caring if they stumble into sin because of us doing that or even disdaining a believer because his conscience, his or her conscience convicts him or her in a certain area where yours does not that's another way of looking down on a fellow believer you know well that person is they just don't understand their liberties in Christ and we look down on them because their conscience convicts them about engaging in a certain activity and ours doesn't we can do unbecoming things in a child's presence can't we and if we do an unbecoming thing in a child's presence and cause the child to stumble What did Jesus say? It would be better if a millstone were tied around our neck and we were down in the depth of the sea. Same thing with a spiritual babe. If we do unbecoming things that cause them to stumble, um, an immature believer, then we are looking down on them. We are disdaining them. We can despise other believers because of their lack of maturity. We say, oh, well, that person just is such... He's, he's so carnal, he's so immature, and we look down on them. You know, to despise a person, another Christian, for any reason, really, is a reflection on our own spiritual maturity, isn't it? If you think about it, if you despise somebody, if you look down on a fellow Christian for any reason whatsoever, it's really a reflection of where you are, because we are not to do that. We're up to understand that Christ loves all his little ones. He died for all of his little ones, right? What are we to do instead of despising them? We're to help them. We're to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. We can despise another believer because we don't like their appearance. Paul had this problem. I used to have a set of of, um, books on church history, and I gave them to my cousin who was at that time a missionary in Zaire. And he and his family had to evacuate Zaire. This was years ago because of a revolution. And they only got out, they got their five children out and one suitcase. And so my book, my, my volumes on church history are probably somewhere over in Zaire, if they're, if they're even still there. I hope somebody has them and they're reading them. But I remember that there was a description of the Apostle Paul in them that I read. And I don't know if it's accurate, but the description of Paul was that he was short that he had a really big nose, you know, a large beak, <laughs> that he had a beady eyes that were always watery and runny, and that he was not at all pleasing to look at. And I remember that description. And in the scripture, Paul says to the Galatians that he actually commended them that they did not despise his appearance. Because apparently a lot of places he went, people would say, oh, who wants to listen to him? He's not very pleasing to look at he's ugly you know so you can despise someone because of their appearance and that by the way is in Galatians 4:14. if you want to look it up or we can despise someone because of the way they dress or their mannerisms maybe you don't like the way I do my hand like this you know I don't know <laughs> we <We've laughs> oh yeah my husband does this what he teaches it's so hilarious and I I try to make faces at him during Sunday school class to get his attention and every week I say you did it again he said I did. He said, "I don't even realize." He's up there doing that. His palms get itchy when he gets nervous. I guess <laughs> uh, we can we can despise a fellow believer who has rebuked us because of some sin in our life. You know, hopefully they've come to us in a spirit of meekness and kindness and gentl- gentleness, but to point out some particular sin in our life, and we might despise them for that. Or we might despise someone who has come, tried to come beside us to restore us to the fellowship. Maybe we, at one point in our life, uh, fell from the fellowship, you know, of assembling ourselves together with other believers, and, and somebody came to us and um, tried to encourage us. We had strayed, and maybe we despised them for that, which is wrong. You know, if, if you miss a couple weeks, don't get upset with your leader your um, discussion group leader, if she calls you, she's just trying to encourage you to, you know, that we miss you and to come back into the group. We may despise the believer who has strayed. That's wrong too, to despise, to look down on the one who has strayed or has backslidden and talk negatively about him or her. We also despise the Lord's children when we try to use any believer for our own personal gain. You know, rubbing shoulders with somebody because um, uh, maybe we can benefit in some way from associating with them. And unfortunately, the church at Corinth was even do this in in a sexual way. They were uh, abusing, they were using one another for their own personal sexual benefit. Well, that's really getting bad, isn't it? But that's a form of despising a fellow Christian. We can despise a fellow child of God by withholding help from them when we understand that they have a need which we can can meet. There are I hope you're seeing the picture, there are many, many ways that Christians can look down or despise uh, disdain other Christians, the Lord's little ones. And Jesus tells us in this sermon to his twelve apostles to take heed that we do not despise even one of his little ones. And then in the next four and a half verses, he tells us why it is that his little ones, which I hope includes everyone in this room, I hope every one of you are a child of God, that you have accepted him into your heart, that you understand he did indeed die on the cross for your sins and that he was buried and after three days he bodily arose from the tomb. And he ascended unto high and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why did he do that? It tells us right in, this, in these verses. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He came to save us so that we could spend eternity with him and be in the presence of his, of his Father. Well, so he tells us now why it is that his little ones are worthy of respect. And it has to do with their relationship to the holy angels to himself the son the caring good shepherd and also because of our relationship to god the father the first reason he gave to his men as to why they were to never assume a superior attitude or despise any other believer is because of their relationship to the holy angels in heaven who are always beholding the face of the father he says my father there and again that's That's another claim to his deity that he dared to call God his own father. And that's in the latter part of verse 10, in case you're looking. You know, however lowly the world may esteem Christians, the truth of the matter is that we have angels as our personal attendants. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? We have holy angels as our attendants. So it doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. They don't have holy angels as (laughs) their ministering spirits, do they? And these angels, we are told by Jesus, and he ought to know about angels because guess what? He created them exactly. These angels enjoy in heaven the highest dignity and consideration. They are not just once in a while in the presence of God kind of angels. They are continually beholding the face of God. That's what Jesus says we're going to listen to anybody tell us about angels, we should listen to Jesus. And he says, in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Isn't it interesting that those angels are called our angels? He could have said that in heaven, my angels. He could have said that because they, were, they are his angels. He created them and they belong to him by right of creation. But he called them our angels. He used the possessive pronoun their Did you ever think of the fact that God's angels are our angels? That's amazing. That's incredible. They are our angels. Why is that? Well, because if we belong to Christ, everything that is his is ours. Now, talk about trying to grasp a concept. (laughs) Everything that he owns is also ours. We're joint heirs with him. And it says it tells us this in um 1 Corinthians 3 verses 21 to 23. It says, For all things are yours. That includes the world. It says it. First Corinthians three. All things are yours. The world? Do you ever know the world belonged to you? It doesn't belong to the rich and famous and the mighty and the powerful. It belongs to us. Christ's little ones. All things are yours. The world, life, death, things present, things to come. It says all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Wow, that is a big concept to try to grasp, that everything, we own everything with Christ. Jesus was not only teaching his men the reality of angels. Now remember, there was a sect of religious rulers that didn't even believe in angels at all, and who were they? Sadducees. Sadducees. That's why they were Sadducee, because they didn't believe in angels. Um... Or the resurrection they didn't they didn't have a resurrection day they didn't believe in the resurrection so jesus was not only teaching the reality of angels are there angels yes there are jesus says there are and if if you don't want to believe in angels then you shouldn't say you believe in jesus because he didn't know what he was talking about then but he tells us about the reality of angels he also tells us of the reality of guardian angels who have direct continual access to god therefore because they're continually there, in the presence of God, beholding his face always, they therefore do not ever miss one single command from him regarding those to whom they minister. You see, the primary job of these angels, at least for this time in eternity's program, is to serve God by ministering to his little ones. And we know this from also Hebrews 1.14, which tells us that they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who are the heirs of salvation. So this is a warning to the would-be offender that every sin, every stumbling block, every offense, every time we look down on another person, <clears throat> um, another, a fellow Christian, is brought before God by these ministering spirits. No offense will go unnoticed. That's kind of a scary concept, isn't it? Doesn't that make us do some self-examination? And by the way, the idea of an individual guardian angel, you know, one believer, one little one for every, or I should say one ministering spirit, one angel for every believer, that concept is not taught in the scripture. There is more support... For teaching that we have many guardian angels, not just one apiece. I know I would probably wear one out, in, you know, <laughs> at least in one lifetime. <laughs> I think that's even more exciting. Every time it's it speaks about the angels ministering to us. It's always in the plural, ministering spirits. Here it says they're angels, plural. So there's more support for the fact that we have a whole guard of angels ready to be dispatched to our aid when we need them. And I think that's even more amazing, isn't it? Now, the Lord's words would have really shocked the religious rulers. Of course, the Sadducees wouldn't have liked it at all, but even the other religious rulers who did believe in angels would have been shocked to hear these words because rabbinic teaching about angels was that only the chiefest or the most chief of angels stood before the very face of God hearing his divine counsels and hearing his commands. The other angels, the rabbis taught, stood on the outside somewhere and they ranged in different classes according to knowledge. Isn't that typical of them? They arranged the, arranged the angels by, by their knowledge. And that was the distinction in which they also taught guardian angels uh, ministered to people. In, in other words, the, the person who had the most knowledge of the scripture and the most knowledge of God had the chiefest angel as his guardian or the chiefest angels, plural. So that meant, of course, they thought of themselves as the most elite, the, the ones who knew the most about God, who, who were the students of the scripture. So that if anyone had the up front angels, those who were continually beholding the face of God, it would be them and the common people would have the back burner angels, you know, the angels way in the back somewhere, far away from the throne of God. But Jesus didn't teach that kind of distinction here at all, did he? That it was the more the the one who was more exalted in knowledge or merit who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. His whole his whole thing here is that those who are the humble, who those who are the less conscious of self, And the more dependent on him are the greatest and the nearest to God. And he actually says here that all his little ones have up front angels, doesn't he? That just shows us how special we are to him. So the Lord spoke about this relationship his children have with the holy angels so that they would realize how valuable every believer is to God and therefore we would see how wicked it is for us to look down with contempt on one another one who God so richly values. Yet really it's not the angels who are important in this passage. They're interesting to talk about and it's wonderful to think of them protecting us and being, you know, I pray every day for my children, to, you know, that the Lord would protect my children with his holy angels, especially my son who's flying up there where the prince of the power of the air is, you know, <laughs> that his angels would surround him in his plane. But, um, And that's wonderful to know we do have ministering spirits, guardian angels, plural, but <clears throat> the most important one in this passage is the one who created the angels. Um, And is also the good shepherd who came to save that which was lost. So another reason the Lord gave as to why Christians should not despise or look down on one another is because of our relationship to the son. And this is what we see in verses 11 to 13. The reason that angels have such a great charge over the little ones of the Lord and attend to them with such care is because of our relationship to Christ. You see, he loved lost man so much that he was willing to be made in the likeness of man and become the son of man, which he calls himself in verse 11, and therefore experienced the greatest condescension possible. Can you re- even imagine a more a greater condescension than to be the creator god of the whole universe you talk about being in the presence of god the father continually like the angels if everyone was continually in the presence of god from eternity past the angels can't do that because they were created they don't go all the way back to the beginning jesus does there was no beginning he's always been But not only has he continually been in the presence of God the Father, but he was one with the Father. And yet he was willing to, you talk about becoming a little child. Isn't it interesting that everything the Lord asks us to do, he exemplified? Hasn't he asked us to become like little children in our humility? Isn't that exactly what he did? Didn't God come down here and become a little child, literally become a little child, a humble little child who was who was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a borrowed manger? Wow. Talk about it condescension and talk about teaching us about humility and dying to self. He who was the very nearest to the Father became himself a humble human child so that he could seek and save that which was lost. He could teach others about humility. Why? He could teach others about humility because he exemplified it. He was humility personified. He could teach others about true greatness because he taught us that with his own life. Therefore, to despise or to look down on any Christian is to look down on the one who did not think it was too great of a sacrifice to condescend from heaven to earth to die for that one. Let us keep that ever present in our minds whenever we're tempted to look down on another believer. Christ came down from heaven to die for that one, to seek and to save that one, just like he did for you and I. Well, he went on then to illustrate his loving concern and care for each and every of his little ones by presenting the parable of the lost sheep. Now, this is one of the most famous parables that the Lord ever spoke, the parable of the lost sheep. It was so important that he repeated it. He not only gives it to us here, In Matthew 18, but later on in our Life of Christ study, if you want to flip over to Luke 15, you will find that he gave the parable again. He gave it twice. Now, what is interesting is that the parable found over in Luke 15, we'll talk about that one first. It's in verses 3 to 7, by the way. You could call it the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the seeking shepherd. It's it's referred to as both. In in, uh, Luke... The setting and the points are different from the account we find here in Matthew 18. In Luke, Jesus answers the teachers of the law. He answers the religious rulers who were criticizing him at that point for having associated with known sinners, you know, publicans and um, prostitutes. They're criticizing him. Why do you always associate with sinners? And Jesus used the parable of the lost sheep in Luke to explain that he is associating with sinners in order to save them. Just as a shepherd exerts himself for a lost sheep. And even though he has 99, if one is lost, he exerts himself and he rejoices when he finds it. And so in Luke, he's referring really to lost meaning unsaved the lost sheep is an unsaved sheep. And we know this because he says the sheep is a sinner who repents. Now, in Matthew, in the parable of the lost sheep we're going to look at now, is Jesus talking to his critics? Is he talking to the religious rulers? No. He's teaching his own men, his disciples. And the point he makes is in this occasion of the parable of the lost sheep, is that they must be like shepherds in their care for other believers. Isn't that who he's talking about? Other believers and how we treat other believers? Aren't the little ones those who believe in him? So the sheep here in this giving of the parable are believers who have strayed. So the lost sheep in Luke 15 is is referring to the lost person, the unbeliever, whereas the lost sheep in this giving of the parable is the one who has strayed, a true believer but one who has strayed. So the Lord used in this parable, he used the illustration of a man who owned a hundred sheep, or at least he was the shepherd of a hundred sheep. Maybe he didn't own them, but he was the shepherd of them. And one of the sheep had strayed. But this shepherd cared enough about that one sheep that he searched and searched until he found it. And when he did find it, he rejoiced more over that one found sheep than he did over the other 99 who had not gone astray. Now, some, you know, sheep stray. Did you know that sheep? It's amazing that the Lord compares us to sheep because sheep are one of the dumbest animals there are. Not very complimentary, it might have been nicer if he called us owls or something, you know, but i 'm not sure that an owl is really that smart but we're we 're dumb sheep so so believers stray, some believers stray because they 're weak, they have never really grown in the Lord, maybe they haven 't been discipled, um, and so they they 're just weak and they wander away, others cool off, you know like um The church at Ephesus lost their first love. They cool off in their love for Christ. Maybe they're not assembling themselves together with believers like they should, and pretty soon they wander away. Others backslide into sin and shame. Some are stubborn. A lot of sheep are stubborn. They're stubborn toward the Lord. Some become self-centered because of some hurt in their life. Maybe another Christian has caused them to, to be hurt has put up a stumbling block and they're hurt or they feel neglected and they wander away. They allow that hurt, that pain, that neglect to develop into bitterness and to in, in hostility. So they wander from the flock. They go out and they sin in anger or in retaliation or bitterness. There are innumerable reasons for sinning, but the bottom line is that believers do sin. Any believer who says he never ever sins in thought, word, or deed, or even sins of omission, things we don't do that we should do, he's a liar and he's deceiving himself. The believers sin, and some sin rather seriously. But the thing to remember is this, for the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. You know, we are all like sheep. We were all like sheep, right? Each and every one of us at one point in time were going our own way. We are all wandering sheep. We were all wandering sheep. And even as you walk this straight and narrow, we have a tendency to go off the path here and there, don't we, and to wander. Aren't you glad that we have a good shepherd who cares about us and that always is concerned about bringing us back? Both the world as a whole and man as an individual have gone astray. Each person has strayed from God and is wandering about in a wilderness of sin, and each person is doomed to be destroyed by that wilderness unless he is reached and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, by use of this parable, Jesus was telling his men and us that we are not even to think harshly of those who have wandered. Remember, we're not to despise them. We're not to think badly about them. We're not to despise the strangest of believers. Remember, we talked about that Last week, every family has its black sheep. We're not only not to despise the strangest of believers or the black sheep, but now we're also told not to despise straying believers, not strange believers or straying believers. Don't despise the black sheep and don't despise the backslidden sheep. In truth, we are to even be more concerned about the one who has strayed than those who have not. And it's not because the one who has strayed is more valuable than the others. You know, the other 99 who didn't stray in this parable. And by the way, you cannot use a parable to teach, to use every point of a parable to teach doctrine. You you, you don't even use parables really to teach doctrine. Um, they're They're basically given to us to teach one main point or a few main points, but you can't take every aspect of a parable and use it as an as you would with an allegory. An allegory you can. Like Pilgrim's Progress, everything stands for something. But in a parable, it's getting one main point across, usually. But um, the reason that we're to value the, the one that has strayed is not because he's more valuable, but because his condition makes him of greater concern. Probably the one who was strayed did so because he did encounter some kind of a stumbling block. Uh, His focus may have been so fixed on that stumbling block that he didn't watch where he was going. And the next thing he knew, he found himself far from the rest of the fold. Now, there, of course, are many, we talked about some, but many, many reasons why sheep go astray. The the sheep can be attracted by something glittering maybe out there in the wilderness. Maybe his eye caught something sparkling out there in the wilderness, something that looked attractive, and he started to wander. You know, his focus (laughs) got over that way, and he wandered away from the flock and the shepherd, and before he knew it, he was lost. He couldn't find his way back. Uh, a sheep can be aimless. Maybe he's just wandering around kind of with his head in the cloud and he's, he's just not even thinking and he's aimless and next thing he knows, he's lost. He, he hasn't paid attention to what's going on. The sheep may refuse to heed the shepherd's warnings. Does the shepherd give us lots of warnings about how not to get off the, the pathway? Yes, but lots of sheep don't always listen to the shepherd's warnings or to the other sheep's example of staying close to the shepherd. Or maybe the sheep is just not attached enough to the shepherd and to the other sheep. Whatever the reason that the sheep may have gone astray, and there are many reasons, the good news is that the shepherd knew the lost sheep. Does he know every one of his sheep? And does he know every one of his sheep by name? Yes, he does. He had a large flock to attend, but he knew every single one of his sheep. And when the lost sheep got lost, the shepherd knew it. He missed the sheep. Isn't that wonderful to know that he missed he missed the one. He could have just said, "Oh well, that's just one. I've still got 99. No big deal." But he missed that sheep, and so he went after it. You know, when a child is lost, like this little boy scout a couple weeks ago that was lost in here in North Carolina, the 12-year-old kind of his own fault wasn't it but uh, the family stops everything if you lose a child everything comes to a screeching halt doesn't it it doesn't matter how many other children you might have <clears throat> i remember one time when my youngest daughter was about three or four or she's pretty young and i was up <clears throat> in chicago visiting my family we were in a big department store up there and i took my eyes off of her for one second and she was gone Oh you talk about a mother's heart sinking <gasps> everything came to a screeching halt and I had the whole store I mean all the <laughs> clerks and everybody were looking for little connie and she hmm, she she was purposely hiding in a clothes rack laughing and thinking it was hilarious that everybody was looking for her and calling her <laughs> But it doesn't matter how how big, how many other children. If you have 99 other children and you lose one, you're going to stop and you're going to search until you find that child. And that's how the Lord wants us to be. He's that way and that's how he wants us to be with regard to the family of God. Fortunately for this one wandering sheep... He belonged to a very good shepherd. And this shepherd was willing to fight wolves. He was willing to fight thieves, to climb steep mountains, to descend into dangerous places. Where did it say he went? He went into the mountains. The mountains in Israel can be really rugged. He, he, went, he, he went to any point of sacrifice necessary in order to restore that wandering sheep. And, of course, we know our good shepherd did do that. He even went to the cross. The shepherd died for the sheep, didn't he? Now, in this parable, of course, we do see the love of Christ, our good shepherd. And we will talk more about Christ as our good shepherd when we get to John chapter 10. You know, John 10 is the good shepherd chapter of scripture. But he illustrated for us in this person of the shepherd who spared no amount of toil or labor to bring in one of his little ones back into his arms. And over in Luke, it says he actually put him on the 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 strayed sheep, he put him up on his shoulders. He was patient to the point of seeking for him diligently. And he didn't wait for that strayed sheep to somehow wander back to him on his own because he knew how dumb the sheep was. He wouldn't do that. He probably would not wander back on his own. So he went after it. Uh, And when the man did find it, And there's not a a guarantee that he always does find it. Notice it says, and if so, be that he find it. And that's in verse 13. You know, not all wandering sheep do come back to the fold. We can pray and pray and pray, and we can try and try and try, but there's no guarantee that they always will. Some of them, now I'm not saying they lose their salvation. No, no, I'm not saying that. But they, you know, sometimes... The Lord might just take them. They might, they might get, fall down a crevice or a precipice, or get eaten by a wolf and not come back. But that doesn't mean they lose their. Doesn't mean they lose their eternal soul. But when He found this one, and He did find this one in the parable, there was great rejoicing in His heart. He was so happy in His heart. Can we make God happy? Can we grieve God? You know, the Greeks actually taught that God did not have emotions, that that it was impossible for for man to cause God to have emotions because they taught that that would mean we had control over God to that extent. You know, if I can make God happy or if I can grieve God, then in that sense I have control over God. But Jesus doesn't teach that. The scripture doesn't teach that. It teaches that we can cause him to rejoice, and that we can grieve him. So that concept, that, was, that might sound good on paper as a man philosophy, but it's not what scripture teaches. John MacArthur explained the joy of this one restored like this. He said, quote, There is special joy expressed for the sheep that is found, not because it is more valued or loved than the others, but because its danger, hardship, and great need elicit special concern from the caring shepherd. In the same way, I think about this, when one child in a family is ill, if one of your children gets sick, particularly if it is seriously ill, a mother will devote much more time and attention to that child than to the other ch- children, often more than to all the rest altogether. Isn't that true? If you have a child who's sick, where's your focus? Where's your attention spent? Where's your concern? It's not on the children who are well. It's on the child who is sick. And he says, and when that child finally gets well, the mother does not rejoice for the children who have been healthy all along, but for the one who was sick and suffering. Her rejoicing is in the one that has gotten well. And if the brothers and sisters are loving, they too will rejoice in the restoration of their sibling. End of quote. That makes sense as mothers, grandmothers, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you would expect, you would hope that your other children would be very happy when the one child gets well. But we have another parable. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? <laughs> the prodigal son, you know, went out and he spent his inheritance and he, and he wound up in a pig, pig pen uh, but he finally came to himself, and, he, and he, he came back to his father. His father ran out to greet him, and he, what did he do? He killed a goat, and he had a big party, and he rejoiced. But the older brother, who was out in the fields when his younger brother came home, and he came back and heard that this party was going on and saw all the, his father's rejoicing and all the happiness that was going on, he actually got mad at the father. He wouldn't go into the party. He wasn't rejoicing for his brother at all. He was mad at his father, and he said, you know, I've been faithful to you all these years. I've been slaving away for you. I've never, you know, spent your inheritance, and and I've been here by your side, and you never killed a goat for me. You never, you know, had all my friends come over and have a big celebration for me, and here your son, he didn't even call him my brother. He says, here your son, the son of yours who has squandered all his money... Um, comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. Do you know what that older brother was showing us? Exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He was disdaining one of the Lord's little ones. He was he was he did not rejoice when one of the sheep the sheep that was lost was returned to the fold. Actually, in that case, I believe the son was lost and got saved. But his brother should have been rejoicing, shouldn't he? He was really the prodigal son. The older brother. And you know who he really pictured, the older brother? He pictured the religious rulers of Israel. And we'll talk about that when we get to Luke 15. So what were the disciples thinking about at the time Jesus gave them this parable? Remember what had been foremost on their minds? Who among them was the greatest? You know, when you think about it (laughs) from, from this parable's perspective, how silly that is. Each one of them wanted to be top sheep. Now what what would be the big deal about being a top sheep? I mean it's, <laughs> it's like not like being top dog or top gun, uh, top sheep. Big deal, you know, you're the head of all the dumb sheep. <laughs> and by the way, do you know what you call a a wandering male sheep? A rambling ram <laughs> or a roaming ram? <laughs> As long as they thought such things, you know, about being top sheep, they would never be concerned for the one who was lost, because you see, they saw themselves as the ninety and nine. And they would never do anything to help find him or her. They didn't show any concern for that guy who was outside the flock, who was, you know, one of the Lord's little little ones. They didn't care about him. He didn't belong to their little flock, so they just said, Stop doing what you're doing. Who will be the greatest? I think we should be beginning to understand the answer to that question by now. The greatest believer in the kingdom of heaven is the one who is most like the shepherd, who gave himself for us. And we are never more like the shepherd than when we exert ourselves to help others. And if God rejoices, and we know he does, if God rejoices over the one We help to bring back into the fold or to bring in the fold to begin with. You know that he rejoices over our part in that as well, doesn't he? So Jesus asked his men a question. It's a good question. How think ye? See at the beginning of verse 12? He asked his men, how think ye? And by this question, he was causing them to reflect on the way that they had been treating one another in this argument over greatness and in the way they had treated a fellow believer, simply because he was not the same fold with them. They were not to despise any child of God, not the least nor the lost. How think ye, he asked them. Have not all of us initially been saved from destruction, from perishing by the good shepherd, have we not all? Absolutely. Have not each of us, as I said before, at one time or another, stumbled or strayed off the way? And have not each of us had to have been restored by the shepherd of our soul? Does not heaven rejoice each and every time a soul is saved? All the angels rejoice. Certainly, we should be down here. And does not heaven itself rejoice, as we learn in this parable, each time a straying Christian is restored? Not only do they rejoice when someone is saved, but when someone is restored. So if there is such joy in heaven for the finding of each of these little ones, do we not likewise think there is great sadness in heaven? whenever one such little one is offended or despised by one of his own brothers or sisters in Christ, how think ye then when it comes to the treatment of the brotherhood of Christ? That's something to think about for each and every one of us. Well, the last reason he tells us that his little ones are worthy of not being despised is because of our relationship to the Father. The reason the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, searched and sacrificed for that which was lost was because it was the will of his Father in heaven that not one of his little ones should perish. As a member of his family, and notice he goes from calling God his Father, he said my Father in verse 10, but down in verse um, 14 he says your Father. When we enter into the fold, he becomes, God becomes our father. Remember, we're, all, every, we're the family of God. He is our father. As a member of his family, he expects our help in reaching the lost sheep and in caring for the flock. Being a member of the family of God carries with it res- the responsibility of reaching the lost and of helping to care for the other members of the family, does it not? So let's remember that. Thank you for your patience, and we're going to have a special treat in just a minute. Mary Esther is going to um, come and sing a song for us. So let's close in prayer, and then Mary Esther. Father, thank you, not only for conquering death on our behalf, but for taking the victory from the grave, the sting from From death, We thank you for the resurrection again as we did at the beginning of this lesson. Thank you that you are the good shepherd who came to save and to seek that which was lost. And now that we have heard these instructions on how we are to live in peace and in harmony with all those in the family of God, we are even more accountable and we are more responsible to obey. So, Father, I pray that we will each review our relationships with all those we know who are fellow believers. And if we realize we are despising or looking down in any way on any one of them, Lord, I pray you would convict our hearts enough to humble ourselves before you and confess this inappropriate attitude. Father, thank you again for reminding us of our relationship, not only with the holy angels, our ministering spirits, but with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and with yourself. Father, we love you. I pray your protection each woman over the next two weeks. May we be light and salt for you during this resurrection season, for we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.